I am personally a believer in in determinism, uh, not least because I think stochasticity is. You know, I, I mean, I'm a. In practice, noise is very important. It's important in weather and climate models. It's important in the brain. So, at a at a kind of practical level, noise is important. But at a fundamental level, we're really going back to absolute fundamentals. I think noise and stochasticity make no sense whatsoever. Um, and I think ultimately the world has to be deterministic because I can't see anything else making any any sense. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 162. And this episode is with Tim Palmer, who is Royal Society Research Professor in Climate Physics at the University of Oxford, where he is a senior fellow at the Oxford Martin Institute and a professorial fellow at Jesus College. And although Tim's training was in theoretical physics, and we talk a lot about theoretical physics and the foundations of physics, he works on the predictability and dynamics of weather and climate including extreme events, and is well known within the field for developing probabilistic ensemble forecasting techniques, which, of course, we get into. But for the most part, in this episode, Tim and I discuss his recent book, The Primacy of Doubt, From Quantum Physics to Climate Change, How the Science of Uncertainty Can Help Us Understand Our Chaotic World. More particularly, in this doesn't have so much to do with the primacy of doubt. We talk about black holes and the holographic principle, the foundations of quantum mechanics, and then enter the primacy of doubt, meteorology, chaos theory, consciousness and free will, and the problem of climate change. So there's a link to the primacy of doubt in the description. And likes, comments, subscribes, reviews, follows, all these things are so helpful. So please do that if you haven't, or even if you already have. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Tim. I know that you did your doctorate in theoretical physics and specifically on energy and momentum in general relativity. But since then, you've been best known for working in meteorology. And before reading The Primacy of Doubt, I'd never really thought about how the two might be connected, though, of course, any physical process like weather is at root just that. It's a physical process. But what is the explicit connection between meteorology and then your training in physics. So how did you end up there by studying black holes of all things? <laughs> well, it, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's a complete and utter coincidence. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, <clears throat> I studied, um, as you say, my PhD was in general relativity theory. Um, at the time when Hawking had just discovered that black holes evaporate, and my PhD supervisor, who was also Stephen Hawking's PhD supervisor some years earlier, Dennis Sharma, very eminent cosmologist, um, he was kind of both excited but frustrated by Hawking's result. Um, he was excited because it seemed to bring 
quantum mechanics, gravity, and thermodynamics together in one result. But he was frustrated in in the sense that the mathematics underlying Hawking's result was very, uh, I would say, obscure. You know, he, if you if you look at Hawking's papers, you know, there's, there's kind of complicated algebraic structures which you evaluate at infinity, and suddenly this black body radiation comes out for the quantum fields. And Sharmak just couldn't understand, you know, what's going on here, that, that, that suddenly you get this black body spectrum. And um, he asked me to look into a concept, which at the time I'd never heard of, called the principle of maximum entropy production. And the idea was, was, was there some way of framing Hawking's result using ideas in nonlinear thermodynamics? And I, I kind of played around with this for a little bit, but almost got nowhere with it and concluded that it probably wasn't much to do with it. But then a year or two later, when I had almost finished my PhD and I was thinking about, and in fact, I'd been offered a postdoc position to work with Hawking, but I was kind of having slightly second thoughts. And I I just happened to be sharing a room with somebody who knew a kind of world famous climate scientist. And this guy said, well, why don't you just talk to him about climate, you know, and I said, well, you know, I don't know anything about climate and I don't even know whether the maths that I know is of any relevance to climate. And I kind of just went to talk to this guy, almost feeling it was a waste of time. I mean, why am I wasting my my time and his time talking about climate? And he, I, I said to him, you know, his name was Raymond Hyde. I said, Professor Hyde, look, I'm sorry, but I've been recommended you by a, a third colleague. Uh, but to be honest, I know nothing about climate. Uh, he said, look, don't worry, but let me tell you this paper that I've I've just received this morning from some Australian uh, climatologists claiming to show how the, all of the Earth's climate system can be derived from the principle of maximum entropy production. So suddenly this kind of really um, obscure concept, which I'd never heard of, um, you know, seemed to kind of potentially link black holes to climate. And I, I, it just kind of made me think that, you know, science, uh, the, the basic kind of workings of science apply across different fields, you know. So if you, if you, if you know about Maxwell's equations or, or um, you know, quantum field theory or Schrodinger's equation or anything like that, you, you end up solving differential equations which are very similar, actually, to the equations that you meet in fluid mechanics. And so, in fact, a lot of the techniques and this idea about non-equilibrium thermodynamics was just one example, they carry over. Um, so, I, you know, I thought, well, I'll give it a go because I, I did want to do something. I, I, I felt what I had achieved in my PhD, which was a formulation of gravitational energy momentum, was... A little bit. I mean, it was a formal solution. I, I couldn't really see what use it was for anything. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of, I thought, well, do I want to spend the rest of my life doing stuff that only a handful of people are interested in? And um, this this experience with this world famous climate scientist made me realize that actually, you know, I could change fields and uh, see what it was like. I always thought, well, I'd give it a go for three years. And if I don't like it, I can always move back into theoretical physics. Um, but actually, I, I ended up enjoying myself. And I, I'm actually very happy I made the, the change because, you know, I have used a lot of the 
concepts and maths, particularly in nonlinear. I mean, general relativity is a nonlinear subject, um, as is for fluid mechanics and climate dynamics. So, and of course, you know, chaos theory is is underpins a lot of things, and that's that's kind of fantastically interesting because it gives rise to a geometry that I feel is is still actually underutilized in in fundamental physics. So yeah, I, I, it was kind of it, it was a slightly illogical change in some respects, but it's one that I'm happy to have to have made. Yeah, you mentioned Dennis Shama, and then I know that Roger Penrose was also an advisor of yours, and you almost then worked with Hawking. So you really had some tremendous mentors and, and contacts in the field. Oh, it was a very exciting. I mean, this was in the 1970s, extremely exciting time. Um, to be in relativity, and I and I met, uh, as you say, Penrose and Hawking um, Sharma, and and from the U.S. people like John Wheeler, who was a real, you know, father figure, seminal figure there, uh, and others. Um, so yeah, I know I, I don't regret my time, but also I don't kind of regret actually having spent most of my life doing stuff that's, I hope, of some use to people. Yeah, yeah. Just curious though, when you, I mean, now Hawking is a total legend everybody knows his name when you turned down that postdoctoral position was he already that sort of star uh he wasn't perhaps quite such a star in the public's eye uh i mean that sort of came about i can't remember what year his his book was published um but you know he'd written a very seminal textbook um on um you know the on using ideas from di differential geometry um and, and basically the kind of singularity theorems that he and penrose co-discovered uh that penrose got a, a nobel prize for incidentally um if hawking had stayed alive i you know he always used to say he would never win a nobel prize because um his work was too theoretical, but actually, I think he would have he would have co-shared it with with Penrose had he had he lived. Um, yeah, no, he was he was certainly in the academic community a, a superstar. So no, you're right. I mean, if you're saying was it an easy decision to turn down an offer from from Hawking? No, it wasn't an easy decision at all. I, I agonized about it for weeks and weeks, and yeah, it it almost uh, did my head in. Well, before we move on to meteorology proper, I just want to try something out. I mean, you mentioned the maximal entropy of black holes, and black holes are the most highly disordered and chaotic objects in the universe. And I'm wondering if one of the connections to meteorology, and, and maybe this is, this is these are two different ways of talking about chaos, but the initial conditions of a system in meteorology are extremely sensitive. And if, if there's a slight shift there, the later conditions can be totally different. So chaos is extremely important. Is there a connection to black holes in that sense? Uh, th there is and there isn't uh, in the sense that... Um, one of the fantastically interesting things about black holes is that, um, you know, no matter how complex and kind of chaotic the star is, when it collapses into a black hole, um, 
essentially only three things characterize the, the black hole. So essentially only three things are left um, of the collapsing star, which is its mass, um, its angular momentum, and its charge. Right, it has no hair. It has no hair, that's the no hair theorem. On the other hand, and this is kind of a, I mean, this is really at the heart of, of a lot of theoretical physics. Um, I mean, the, the, we don't for sure know the answer to this question, but the, the thinking is that that complexity is still somehow encoded in the singularity at the center of the black hole. I mean, we don't have access to that singularity. All we see are these three parameters. But the, the idea is if we could go in and kind of probe the microstates of the singularity, we would see all of this um, complexity and chaotic nature revealed there. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a difficult, so, I mean, this, this goes, and this goes to the question of, of information loss, you know, do, when black holes evaporate from Hawking radiation, does that information in the singularity kind of get re-emitted or is it lost forever? And I, I think we're still unsure about the answer to that question. If it's okay with you, I'd actually kind of like to deviate a bit and probe more of your thoughts about information in black holes. Because as I mentioned before we spoke, I talked yesterday to Eric Verland, who is a string theorist in Holland. And we were talking about holography and how the information contained in a black hole is is not on his view or on many string theorists view, it's not encoded in this singularity at the center, but it's encoded in, I guess, Planck area units on the surface area of the black hole. And some string theorists, I think Leonard Susskind is the name, is the na main name that comes to mind, believe that we live in a holographic universe. And that and this is this is moving a bit beyond black holes but everything we experience in in the bulk the center of the universe is really a projection from a two-dimensional boundary on the outside of the universe and i'm wondering when you think of black holes do you still have this uh this view inspired by general relativity where the information really is encoded in the singularity. There is a singularity there. Or if this idea of a hologram resonates with you. Well, um, you see, I mean, this, this touches on a number of, of kind of deeper topics, which you may or may not want to get into. But um, I, you know, Although I, I, in my, you know, my my day job has been very much in climate. The one area I, I have um, put quite a lot of effort into in the last, uh, you know, t couple of decades actually, um, is trying to understand the um, meaning behind the what's called the violation, the experimental violation of Bell's inequality. Um, and I, I have formed a very definite view on this, which is that um, 
You see, the problem is with Bell's inequality. This, this again, this is the this is the experiment which won three uh, eminent physicists the Nobel Prize um, this year. Um, so it's an experimentally proven result. But the question is, what does it mean? And um, it seems to kind of go against um, Einstein's belief that the world is deterministic. You know, there's God doesn't play dice. And moreover, that the world doesn't have what what he calls spooky action at a distance, which is um, which is you know usually used the word used is non-local. Um, so non-locality uh, or actually indeterminism are both, I think, uncomfortable ideas. I mean, non-locality is certainly a very uncomfortable idea. Um, now, quantum mechanics itself kind of gets around that because the state vector in quantum mechanics can describe superpositions. So it's not, it kind of evades Bell's theorem because it's not really deterministic in the normal sense of the word or realistic, I think is the word which most people would use. So I'm very of the view that actually there is a uh, another way out of um, Bell's theorem um, which is to do with something called super determinism. And it's often ridiculed as implying some ridiculous conspiracy. But I think I, and I've written a paper recently on this in the archives, so people can look at it if they're interested, that actually it reflects the fact that the laws of physics are actually much more holistic. Um, and fractal attractors are a good illustration of a kind of holistic geometry. Um, the point about this is that I think there is a way, this does, for me, this points to a way um, for a kind of potential successor to quantum mechanics, to quantum theory, and that we shouldn't treat quantum mechanics and quantum theory as kind of inviolate and, you know, like, you know, almost biblical in its, um, in its correctness, let's say. Um, now, the point about this is that most, I think, of the people who, you know, look at the black hole problem from this holographic string theoretic kind of um, perspective, very much do treat quantum mechanics as a, a given that is not, you know, is not open to violation. Um, so because I don't believe that personally, and I come to it very much from this Bell theorem perspective, I'm not particularly driven to the holographic principle um, or indeed anything that absolutely says all information has to be kind of preserved in uh, in an inviolate way. I don't come to that as a as a principle that absolutely has to be uh, upheld. So I yeah, so I I would say I am more of a kind of traditionalist in that respect that I I do see the you know, the entropy of the black hole is somehow contained in the micro degrees of freedom at the singularity and not, not particularly at the horizon. I mean, the horizon is a very undefined quantity, by the way, uh, uh, locally undefined. I mean, all a horizon is, is it's the surface that just fails to reach in, uh, or where light signals just fail to um, uh, diverge out to infinity. So if I threw a big rock into the black hole um, 100 years into the future, that would change where the event horizon is today. 
So there's no way of knowing where the event horizon is today. It's completely, um, it's undefined at a, at a local level. So I, I find it very hard to understand how one can formulate notions of, of you know, entropy and so on in terms of horizon properties. So I, uh, it, it's a long answer, but I'm more of a, say, call it traditional GR person in that respect. Hmm. I'm really glad that we uh, went down this route. Is it okay if I... Uh, pursue it a little farther. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So yesterday, Eric confirmed exactly what you said in that he told me string theorists believe the world is fundamentally quantum mechanical. So I can understand how if you are going to deny that premise, it's not going to lead you to holography. I understand. I mean, I know much more about Bell's theorem than I do about super determinism as a view. So Bell's theorem rules out local hidden hidden variables, but there are, of course. Well, you say that. You see, it <laughs> it, it 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 doesn't. It rules out local hidden variable theories if you make this additional assumption, which is called uh, sometimes called measurement independence. It's sometimes called statistical independence. Sometimes called lambda independence. It goes from different names. Um, and, you know, in the early days, um, some of the philosophers of physics, Abner Shimoni, I think was, was, was most, uh, well known for this, um, made the comment that, um, oh, wouldn't this mean if, if we violated measurement independence, I, I'll, ex if you like, I can explain exactly what measurement independence is, but we might be going down a rabbit hole that you don't want to go down. But it, but the point is, he made he said, "Oh, well, wouldn't that kind of um, you know, uh, 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 isn't that like doing a kind of a drug trial where somebody behind the scenes is manipulating, you know, which person gets which drug, so you end up with kind of um, statistics that aren't somehow reliable." And for some reason, that picture has, you know, that's the picture everybody thinks is what is being implied by if you violate this measurement independence assumption. But I, you know, I, I've spent a long, long time, believe me, thinking about this, particularly in relation to chaos theory and fractal attractors. And I'm totally and utterly convinced that this is not correct, that there's a perfectly sort of sensible, logical, uh, feasible, plausible way of explaining this violation of measurement independence without having to invoke any of these kind of weird uh, conspiracies, as they're called. Um, the point about that is that there is, therefore, a way to um, understand the violation of Bell inequalities without having to give up on either determinism or locality. I should say, I think Bell himself kind of half understood this and reading his papers, he was kind of grappling towards this, I, I think, without quite seeing, you know, what what was going on. But, um, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to debate this w with anyone, um, but uh, as I was to say, you may not want to go down this too too deeply at this stage. No, so what I should have said was the conventional view, and I think that this is true, is that Bell's theorem rules out local hidden variables and results if someone still thinks QM is incomplete, if they want to preserve or use hidden variables, it 
pushes them to adopt something like Bohmian mechanics. But what I wanted to ask you is because I don't really know much about super determinism. I think what, what comes to mind is that it somehow gets, it avoids non-locality by positing that what we view, what we see as spooky action at a distance is something that was determined locally, but long in the past. And I'm wondering if that is how you would explain it maybe, and why it suggests that to you that quantum theory is not the final theory. And then, then we can move on to the primacy of doubt, if that's okay. Um, Well, you see, I've I'm struggling to sort of explain this in a in a way where I don't get involved in technical details, which I don't think will interest people in detail. But, um, you know, for a long time in the past, you know, just to follow my career. So I I I moved into weather and climate. You know, you asked me whether the mathematics of, of general relativity is relevant to weather and climate. The answer is yes, to some extent. But what I discovered, and that's why I've gone back to theoretical physics, uh, you know, in, in, in the last few years, not, not full-time, but part-time, is because the mathematics, and in particular the geometry of chaos theory, which underpins a lot of, you know, weather and climate stuff, um, is super relevant to uh, these questions that we're talking about. Um, and, um, the, the, the idea of, uh, let me just see if I can describe, I mean, a, a, a chaotic attractor, you know, you take the equations, they're ordinary, like differential equations of, of chaotic systems. Um, and you, you know, you run them on a computer and you look at, uh, you look at, the behavior of the variables in what's called state space. Those so the state or the, the space spanned by the variables. So if there are three variables like there are in Laurent, Laurent, Ed Lorentz's kind of prototypical chaos model, um, you, you, the equations trace out this fantastic geometry in the three dimensions of the three variables. Um, and I mean, well, Lorentz's great insight which took him a long time to get to, was that this geometry that these equations are tracing out is an example of, of a fractal or a, a kind of can, what's called a cantor set sometimes, or a fractal. And the difference between a fractal and a kind of simple Euclidean geometry is that the fractal has structure which persists under, under a zoom. You can zoom into a fractal and you see more structure and you zoom in again, you see yet more structure and so on. Whereas something like a sphere, if you zoom into the surface of a sphere, it just ends up looking boring and, and flat. So something quite fundamentally different. Now, the idea is if you imagine a dynamical system that is evolving precisely on one of these attractors, um, and you imagine freezing it in time, and say, and then you say, well, what would have happened if I changed one of the variables very slightly keeping the other two variables fixed. Um, what you find is you almost certainly move off the attractor altogether. You move into a little gap in the fractal. So uh, what's 
you know, a small mathematical perturbation takes you into one of the gaps. Now, when you're proving Bell's theorem, this is exactly the type of question that you have to ask yourself. You, you say, um, uh, Alice and Bob measured um, a particular pair of particles and they got definite results, you know, up or down for their measurements. But in order to show that your theory satisfies this Bell inequality, you have to ask the question, what would Alice and Bob have seen if they measured those same particles uh, with different measurement settings? So if Alice changed her measurement setting and Bob kept it fixed. And measurement independence says that, uh, well, they would have just got another set of results kind of uh, unrelated to the first results. But if physics operates on this kind of holistic geometry, which is the way I like to think about it, then that counterfactual experiment, the one that they didn't do, but they might have done where Alice measured her particle differently, um, according to this the kind of chaos geometry idea, would lie in a gap in the fractal. So it would be actually mathematically undefined. Uh, it's not that they get different results, but the, that counterfactual experiment um, that you need to prove Bell's inequality would be actually inconsistent with your laws of physics. Now, just to make one last point, um, the interesting thing about this idea of fractal geometry is that it all points on it are sort of equally important or equally, uh, you know, in integral to the geometry. So although it's a deterministic system, it's not that somehow, the, you know, there's an initial condition which is more fundamental than any other point. You know, that, that's the normal way we think about initial conditions. Say, oh, well, the Big Bang was, was the, you know, fundamental initial condition from which everything else sprung. That's not the way it works with these fractal geometries. In some sense, every point has the same ontological status as every other point. And that's a really uh, kind of, it's an unusual conceptual, I think, perspective that it gives you. So it doesn't single out, you know, the Big Bang as being kind of somehow special. All points on the attractor are, are equally special and important. So anyway, so um, yeah. So anyway, that's that's my, you know, that that's very strongly my view. I wanted to say, by the way, if anyone's particularly interested in the, in the gory details. Um, I've written a paper called uh, Super Determinism Without Conspiracy, which you can find on the archive in the quant, quantum physics, quant pH section of, um, of, of the archive. And uh, so I, I go into all the, the details there if, if people are interested. Hmm. This sort of reasoning uh, you're describing, the, the counterfactual, re counterfactual reasoning with Alice and Bob, it actually reminds me very much of the sort of reasoning in the EPR paper that provoked Bell's theorem. That's absolutely right. Every single no-go theorem in quantum mechanics involves counterfactual reasoning. Absolutely every single one. So the status of counterfactual experiments in terms of your theory of physics is absolutely 100% critical. This is the single biggest issue which I want to try and get over. You know, we do, the, the real world, you know, works, things happen. We have a theory 
which hopefully can explain things that happen. But theories, the, the very nature of theories is that you can change variables uh, and see what would happen if other things were different. However, it may be, and I, this is the case, I believe, in quantum physics, that some of those changes that you make, which you might think, you know, why not make the change to a variable? It's perfectly reasonable. But actually, there are constraints, these geometric constraints in state space that actually that say that some perturbations you make to variables that are counterfactual actually violate your laws of physics. And that, for me, is the crucial thing for trying to understand these uh, all of these quantum no-go theorems. So you're absolutely right. It, it started with EPR, continues through Bell, everything else, GHZ, Wigner's friend, uh, you, which is a lot of the modern stuff is based on things called Wigner's friend. You know, it just, just does your head in. David if Deutsch. You, if you look at it. Have you come across that? I don't know. Yeah, it's David Deutsch's thought experiment, right? Or am I... Well, am no, I... It's, it's it went back to Wigner. Um, so you have a... a, a uh, you do a quantum me mechanical experiment. Uh, so a uh, Wigner's friend, this is uh, Eugene Wigner, um, very eminent um, 1950s, 60s physicist. Um, he had this experiment where his friend was doing a, you know, a quantum measurement in a box. And the question is, Wigner is outside the box say a box, I mean, let's say a room or something which is uh, completely uh, sort of shielded from the outside. So Wigner's uh, uh, outside the the room. And the question is, how do you represent the quantum state of the quantum system plus the friend who has done the measurement? So is that in a superposition as well until Wigner himself opens the door and observes that the friend has observed the quantum state to have gone to one of the measurement eigenstates or a different one. Um, and if you believe that, then you can run into, this is the latest, all the latest stuff, you can run into problems that what you believe to be a kind of an unassailable fact of the world is actually observer dependent. Different observers can come up with different conclusions about um, whether, you know, the, the value of experimental results. Now, that's completely bonkers, right? However, to get to that, to get to that uh, conclusion, you have to assume this effectively, this measurement uh, independence that you can talk about counterfactual experiments. And again, if you don't accept that, which I don't, I don't accept that, then that stops you reaching these kind of nonsensical conclusions that, you know, facts of the matter are, are what, what we think is absolute facts of the matter are observer dependent. So it rules that out. As long as you can, if you rule out complete counterfactual definiteness, then you don't, you don't have a problem with these crazy no-go theorems. They, they're not so paradoxical after all. Well, we could we could continue talking about quantum mechanics all day, I'm, and I'm happy to do that. But I also think uh, we should talk about about the primacy of doubt. And you already mentioned Lorenz and the geometry of chaos, and I understand that it underpins the butterfly effect, which has dramatic consequences in our lives, everywhere from meteorology 
to finance, to the entire solar system. And I guess what I'm wondering is if you could explain maybe how this emerges out of the end body problem, which is, I think, where it begins in the primacy of doubt, and then why you find the geometry of chaos to be, as you put it, every bit as significant as relativity or quantum mechanics, which is surprising just because I hadn't heard about it before the book. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> of course, this concept of the butterfly effect is not, uh, is not new. And um, in fact, it comes James, from Lorenz, doesn't it? Well, it, it well, okay. I mean, it actually it actually does go back to probably. I mean, it does go back to Poincaré, uh, Henri Poincaré, French uh, mathematical physicist who who was the one actually who who realized that the um, the three body gravitational problem uh, was was uh, was chaotic. Let, let, let I'll come back to that, but let me just say. Um, in the 1980s, I think it was, uh, James Glick wrote a, a very masterful book on chaos. Um, and they actual, the words, the butterfly effect, I think was coined by Glick in, to describe it. I think it was the opening chapter of his, of his book. Um, so, you know, from, from the uh, 1980s onwards, I mean, people have known about, I mean, people, you know, in general, the public has known about this notion of the butterfly effect. And, you know, there have been movies um, kind of illustrating the concept. Um, the one that comes to mind was the one with Gwyneth Paltrow, I think. Um, I think it was called Sliding Doors or something, and it was based in, in London. And um, she was uh, going back to her uh, apartment um, to see her boyfriend and um she the the doors of the uh, the underground the the metro train were just shutting and in one universe she just squeezed through the doors and i think in the parallel universe uh, she just missed the train so that's the butterfly whether you got through the doors or didn't get through the doors but basically I'm, I'm sort of struggling to remember the movie because it was years ago when I first watched it. But the one where she caught uh, the train, she got back to the flat before uh, her partner had got rid of her uh, of the of the um, girlfriend that he'd had in bed at the time, uh, you know, illicitly, which led to the relationship breaking up and all sorts of, you know, initially bad and then I think good things happening, um, as opposed to the universe where she just missed the train. And the, uh, you know, the third girlfriend had actually slipped out of the flat, so she didn't spot her and, and that sort of led to a different life. So that's kind of manifestation of the butterfly effect. Uh, small things lead to, to big things. Um, the reason, though, I wrote about it in the book was less to kind of go over that ground, which I think Glick does as well as anybody so I, I was kind of, you know, I, I did actually, I mean, obviously I had to describe some of that thing, but but I, I, what I really wanted to to bring out was something which is, 
which is less well discussed, which is when you have these um, chaotic systems where the butterfly effect has, you know, ha has an impact. Um, it's not always that um, that the butterfly actually has a big impact. Um, and I, I cited the the famous poem at the beginning of the book that you know, for want of a um, a, a nail, the the shoe was lost, and the horseshoe was lost, and for want of the horseshoe, the horse was lost, and for want of the horse, the rider was lost, and then the battle was lost, and kingdom was lost, and everything. Well, of course, the point is that most of the time, uh, when horses lose lost horseshoe nails, um, you know, kingdoms weren't lost. It's only sometimes they were. And we see that really over and over again. Uh, and it's a feature of, you know, we see it in in the economy. You know, the economy kind of goes along very, very nicely for a long time and everyone's super happy and inflation is low and GDP is reasonable and everything like that. And then suddenly kind of out of nowhere, we either get a big crash or some, you know, big spike in inflation, you know, which, which hadn't been predicted. Um, our health, you know, global health, we, we get outbreaks of disease in place to place, but by and large, global health is has been sort of fairly stable uh, until, of course, a couple of years ago, um, COVID hit us all. Um, and uh, this actually does go back to, to Poincaré. Um, and, he, you know, the idea that, I mean, he what he realized was that the, the you know, the, we take we take the motion of the planets around the sun as a sort of given clockwork almost. It's something you, you know, you literally set your clock to because uh, it's so reliable. But what he showed was that from time to time, you can get these periods of uh, extreme instability where small changes could actually lead to something really violent, like, you know, potentially the Earth getting ejected from the solar system. We don't actually think that's likely to happen anytime soon, so don't shouldn't panic about it. But um, And this is the point, and, it, and the weather is the same. You know, forecasting the weather, a lot of the time it's fairly routine, and we can make good forecasts of exactly what it's going to be like, you know, a week ahead, 10 days ahead. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, a weather event occurs, which is completely, you know, unpredicted, even a couple of days into the future. So that's the point I wanted to make in the book, it, that chaos is more than just things becoming unpredictable. It's about this notion of unpredictability being very intermittent. It's something which, you know, you can get very complacent about with a system like the economy or maybe even like the solar, the solar system and say, oh, yeah, it's very predictable. Everything's fine. Don't have to worry about anything. And then suddenly it comes along and bites you. And um, the question is, you know, how how can we how can we deal with that situation of intermittent instability? Uh, and that's that's what I a lot of the book is about. That. Yeah, and I think that this notion of intermittent instability directly brings us to your work in meteorology, because as you say, the the butterfly effect doesn't always have a huge impact, but sometimes it does. And it doesn't necessarily have to have a huge impact. It could have a, uh, it, it can still have, I guess, maybe moderate impacts that we need to take into account. And maybe the first thing I should ask is 
why is why are weather systems chaotic? Well, um, uh, there is there are sort of ingredients that you need for chaos that the weather has, and the two most important in, ingredients are what's called non-linearity. Um, so non-linearity kind of means that the way systems respond, let's say, to some input isn't in direct proportion to that input. I mean, I, I, I think in the, in the book I used um, the example of, um, you know, if you won the lottery, if you won a million dollars or pounds or something on the lottery, you'd be pretty happy. Um, if not extremely happy. Um, if you won two million pounds, you'd obviously be more happy than if you won one million pounds, but you probably wouldn't be twice as happy. You, you might be only 25% happier. I don't know. Um, uh, but, you know, pretty much everything in, in life, well, few things, let's put it this way, few things in life are, are linear where the kind of response is completely proportional to the input and certainly whether you know whether if you look at the equations um the famous navier stokes equations which are basically newton's laws of motion for a fluid um and that they, they are they describe you know how the fluid velocity responds to uh you know gravitational forces or viscous forces or other other forces and so on and you see the equation is not linear in in the velocity field so it's a non-linear equation so non-linearity is one important part of chaos the other is this that it has to have this notion of instability that um you know an instability uh, i mean classic instability is balancing a pencil on its uh, tip you know it, it the tiniest air disturbance will move it off its unstable equilibrium and and the, at least initially, the um, the, uh, the the pencil, the, the the deviation of the say the top of the pencil from its resting position grows exponentially in time. And uh, weather systems, for example, you know the low pressure systems that run um, uh, through the mid latitudes. I mean, in the UK, we get you know a lot of most of our rain comes from these low pressure systems, which have grown across the um, Atlantic and they reach kind of maturity by the time they, they hit the UK. And, and these systems grow from an instability that is um, a consequence of the fact that the air to the north is colder than the air to the south. So they, they kind of draw on a temperature gradient to north to south, uh, yeah, a sort of south well, yeah, south being warm and north being cold, gradient in temperature. Um, and that combined with the rotation of the Earth produces what are called baroclinic instabilities. And these baroclinic instabilities are the weather systems that we um, see in mid-latitudes. Um, but otherwise, convective clouds, thunderstorm clouds are examples of, of instabilities where the air... Um, you know, if the temperature, vertical temperature gradient is is um, is large enough, you can trigger a convective instability. So you have these two basic ingredients: nonlinearity and instability, and the, that that's kind of 
90%, if you like, of what uh, underpins chaos theory. Hmm. Let me try this on to, to make sure that I have it right. So because weather systems are so chaotic or so sensitive, there's... Can be. They can be sensitive. They're not always are. That's the point, you see. That, that's, that's the interesting question. When are they super sensitive and when are they not? Okay. Um, there's an inherent degree, though, of uncertainty in any prediction, given our limited knowledge of both the initial conditions of the system and then the equations that govern the evolution of a system. Is that right so far? Yeah. Okay. Then how does this lead to something that you've worked on called ensemble forecasting? And why is this preferable to making single forecasts? Well, yes. I mean, the, 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 this is it. Um, you know, we, we like to think of weather forecasting as, uh, you know, compared with what, what they did in the Victorian or, or earlier times, which was little more than astrology. Um, you know, we like to think of weather forecasting as a scientific discipline. We use Newton's laws of motion. We solve them on a on a computer, a supercomputer. Um, we have very sophisticated um, observations of weather these days based on satellite uh, you know, measurements of, of um, infrared or microwave radiation, which from which you can back out things like the temperature of the atmosphere as a function of height and the humidity of the atmosphere and things like that. And we have Doppler radar systems to give us wind velocity. So we have a lot of high-tech stuff which makes it sound super scientific, but a, a kind of defining characteristic of science is that it should be a, you know, one should be able to estimate the uncertainty. Uh, if you're making a prediction, you should be able to estimate the uncertainty in a prediction. I mean, you know, anyone who's gone through any sort of uh, practical science class, you do a laboratory, uh, you know, measurement, uh, measurement, laboratory experiment where you're measuring something. I mean, you'd, you'd probably fail if you put no error bars on your measurements. It's, it's kind of an, it's, and, it, and in a way, yeah, I mean, it's the thing, I mean, you could say that's what distinguishes science from astrology. I mean, why, 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 why is a, you know, why should you not believe an astrologer who tells you uh, that you'll meet a tall, dark stranger uh, in the next week, for example? Um, well, because there's no estimate of uncertainty on that prediction. I mean, that, that if, you know, it, so I, I always tell people if, if nobody can put error bars on their predictions, you should be very skeptical about it, very cautious, um, which incidentally plays into a lot of climate change questions as well, which we could come to. Um, but, you know, when I, joined, when I started the field, there was no effort um, to uh to do this and um it's not kind of because people didn't feel it wasn't important but because they felt that with their limited resources they had better ways of using computer time and so on um but i you know i tried to make the argument well you know what we need to do is actually instead of running our forecasts forecast models you know once we run them 50 times 100 times and we vary these very slightly uh, uncertain terms in the model, or we, we vary the uncertain observations 
uh, of the initial conditions. And this is the point that when the atmosphere is in a stable, predictable situation, those 50 forecasts will look very similar to one another. And then one can be confident that that is what's going to happen. But conversely, in a situation where you do hit one of these intermittent instabilities, it will manifest itself ahead of time by showing the ensemble you know, massively diverging, each ensemble member diverging from uh, its, its partners. And at the very least, this is telling you to be cautious about... Um, you know, about making kind of definite decisions. Anyway, th this is over the years. I mean, this, this, I have to say, I mean, this met some resistance early on, not because people didn't like the idea, but they thought there were better ways of using the computer time than running the model 50 times over. They wanted to see higher resolution models or something else put in. Um, but I think over the years, it's, well, it's, I think it's now the case that every forecast center in the world runs these ensemble models. And of course, they're the basis for the probability forecasts that you will get on your, you know, on your uh, mobile phone these days. If you look up the probability of precipitation or probability of rainfall, it's given, you know, as a, as a percentage. Um, but what, what I, I mean, if I, if I could just finish with this comment, um, I, w w the thing that has I, I, uh, made me feel most um, pleased, if you like, about about this is that it's given the humanitarian agencies a a, a way of deciding in an objective way um, whether to send in um things like medicines and um, shelter and food and, and, and finance and, and other things ahead of some potential extreme weather event. So, you know, in the past, you know, you, you, people I'm sure will remember um, a, a hurricane or a tropical cyclone uh, will hit or, or a drought or something for that matter will hit um, and after it's done its damage, the agencies then send in, you know, uh, emergency supplies to help the people stricken by the extreme event. Um, and you might say, well, why didn't they send the stuff in earlier, you know, before the event hit? And the answer was that the, the forecast, you know, when you had a single forecast, you couldn't be sure whether it was reliable or not. And they weren't so rich. None of these agencies are so rich that they could afford to you know, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars um, on an event which may never happen. So the question is, how do they? How can they decide uh, when to be confident that they can send in emergency supplies before the event has hit? And the answer is, they can use these ensemble forecasts because they can do a kind of cost-benefit analysis, and they say, okay, we've done the cost-benefit analysis. If the forecast probability exceeds some threshold could be 70% or something, then it makes sense, it makes economic sense to set, and obviously humanitarian sense, to send in um, stuff ahead of, send in food and medicine ahead of time. So it's called anticipatory action. And this has really revolutionized the um, yeah disaster preparedness 
um, the science of it. And um, it's something I, I feel, you know, it's a, it's a real kind of vindication of this route. It, it's not just some kind of really abstract, you know, uh, chaos theory kind of mathematical stuff. This is actually affecting people, millions of people uh, around the world on a, on a, you know, every year, every month probably. Yeah, it's also a a good example of where your work might be more impactful than the handful of people reading a, a dissertation on momentum and energy and general relativity. But absolutely, yes. Just as an example, so that we can get a better idea of how this works in practice, what might an unstable set of initial conditions look like uh, from a data perspective? And then what parameters would you be varying then in your forecast to accommodate the uncertainty? And maybe a particular disaster could be helpful. Well, it, it, it's. I think it's actually very difficult to, um, you know, if you ask me the question, what does an unstable situation look like? Uh, I don't think it's very easy to to answer that question. Actually, um, it, it, in a way, you know, because I've I've looked at uh, many, uh, you know, let's say hurricane type situations um, or tropical cyclones, you know, r ranging from very very predictable a week ahead to something like I don't know. Katrina or something, which is kind of semi-predictable, but not that terribly well predictable, to others which are completely unpredictable, even whether it goes to the west or goes to the east, completely unpredictable. And it's really very hard, I think, to um, sort of say, well, it was, you know, this relative instability was due to a particular, the wind in a particular region or something like that. It's just that the equations of motion kind of integrate everything together and determine, you know, what's what's stable and what's unstable. Um, but, you know, the thing, the thing which changed, uh, the thing which changed um, things around in the UK, at least, was a very remarkable storm. Uh, it is back in 1987. Um, and it's sometimes called the fish storm. And it was named because the then weather forecaster at the BBC was a guy called Michael Fish. And literally the day, the evening before the storm hit, um, six o'clock in the morning. And literally the night before, Michael Fish was giving the evening weather forecast on the BBC and basically said, oh, you know, tomorrow's going to be a little bit breezy, but nothing too, too exceptional. And um, it was literally the worst storm for like 300 years. And um, I, I mean, in today's money, it, you know, billions and billions of, of pounds of damage was done. Um, and, uh, and many people lost their lives because they had no warning of, of the storm. And um, that was one of the first cases I, I looked at. And, um, and, with this ensemble technique, we did it kind of retrospectively and showed that this was phenom phenomenally unstable in the North Atlantic sector. So in the ensemble, uh, you know, there would have been weather, the, you know, every, almost any conceivable type of weather uh, that you might uh, think of from a very balmy day where nothing much was happening through to hurricane force winds. 
Um, but if you put it all together, then you know, with a with a, a lead time of, of a day or two, you can see the probability of hurricane force winds was around thirty or forty percent. Now, uh, there's this very famous uh, phrase from uh, uh, "Is it my fair lady?" I always forget this actually, um, where it says um, in Hampshire, um, Herefordshire, and and Hertfordshire. These are counties in England. Hurricanes hardly ever happen. So you have to bear in mind the prior probability of a hurricane in southern England is as close to zero as you can imagine. So getting something that's 30 or 40% is like uh, an increase in the, in the likelihood by you know, factors of, I don't know, a million or something. So this was... This was um, this was a very uh, important storm, and I think it, it made people realize we've got to take this ensemble system seriously and you know, develop it to the extent that it can be used operationally. And, and basically by 1992, I think it was, we, we'd implemented the first ensemble weather forecasting system, and, it, and it's become, as I say, used around the world now. Well, continuing then with this example of the fish storm, I'm I suppose what I'm asking is just what was the instability in the North Atlantic? Like what are the specific data points that you looked at retrospectively that told you this system is unstable? Um, well, I'm just trying to learn more about how meteorology works in this sense. Right. I mean, it is an example of this kind of baroclinic instability I was talking about. But it's 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 specifically linked to the uh, the a particular interaction of the of the jet stream with the green with the topography of Greenland, and it kind of causes the jet stream to veer in a particular way and to to bring down instabilities in the in the higher atmosphere down towards the surface. Um, but it's this kind of way in which greenland affects the 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 jet stream is 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 unstable and so it's small changes in you know in the wind up upstream of greenland perhaps over the the us eastern seaboard and all that area um you know can have a big diff, big impact on where the, where exactly the how how the topography of greenland affects the jet in this situation but you know I think what I'm trying to get at here is that, um, I mean, we can, you know, people can do and people do do retrospective analyses, but by and large, what we're, you know, we 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 introduce perturbations to the initial conditions, you know, pretty much everywhere in the atmosphere, um, and we, you know, we let we let the equations of motion do do what they do on the computer. So you know, it's not like uh, it's not like we're kind of analyzing uh, the the structure of the jet stream to see whether it's stable or unstable. We're 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 letting the computer model work that out by introducing these perturbations because the atmosphere is sort of too complicated to, um, you know, to 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 just sort of assume it's all one very simple kind of mechanism. So you introduce perturbations to the atmosphere and that 
accounts for one of the two wings of uncertainty that I think we've discussed. It accounts for our imprecise knowledge of the initial conditions. But beyond differing initial conditions, are there other ways in which stochasticity is introduced to the models, like to account for the imperfect equations, or it's not that the equations are imperfect, but our epic epistemic position uh, related to them is uncertain. But these equations used to develop the initial conditions, are these also sort of randomized in a sense? Yes, they are, uh, because the equations themselves are not like I, mean, I mentioned the Navier-Stokes equations. I mean, these, you know, these, these equations are written down using calculus. So, dif you know, what are called partial differential operators, sort of thing Newton basically introduced. Um, but because they're nonlinear, um, they you have to solve them on a computer and the Navier-Stokes equations and indeed the other equations which are used in, in weather forecasting, um, they couple together, this non-linearity couples together large-scale parts of the atmosphere, large-scale circulations in the atmosphere with smaller-scale circulations in the atmosphere. Um, and the smaller scales with yet smaller scales and so on and so on and so on down to down to well down to you know viscous scales um now so those equations are in a sense precise they're deterministic there's no un there's no uncertainty in the equations but you have to you have to solve the equations on a computer and the computer is finite um so um what you do is you, I mean, typically there, there are different ways of doing this, but the typical way you do it is you, you sort of divide the atmosphere and by the way, the oceans as well. These days, weather forecasts are done with what are called coupled ocean atmosphere models. So it's not just the atmosphere alone, it's the ocean too. Um, but you divide the atmosphere and the oceans into little kind of cubes, little kind of finite chunks. Um, and um, well, how how big or small a chunk is depends on how fast or big your computer is. If you have a really, really, really big computer, you can you can run the atmosphere with very small volumes, grid boxes, as they're called. Um, but the point is that within a grid box, in the computer um, model, within a grid box, the atmosphere is assumed completely homogeneous. Um, and unvarying. It just has a single wind velocity, a single temperature, a single humidity, um, and and so on. And um, that's obviously incorrect because we we see, you know, a turbulent fluid has has um, scales of motion on all scales. Uh, so a typical, yeah, I mean, let's say in a typical, I mean, today now um, the uh, the ensemble forecasts are run with models with a with about a ten kilometer. Horizontal, the horizontal side is about ten kilometers. Um, so we have to assume that within those ten kilometers, the ap the atmosphere is homogeneous. That that's the approximation which allows you to um, integrate the equations on a computer. Um, but you know that introduces uncertainty. I mean that introduces errors and, and uncertainty. So we now deal with that uncertainty by adding. Um, stochastic noise 
to the equations on those sort of small 10 kilometer type scales. And people sometimes feel this is sort of paradoxical because the Navier-Stokes equations are deterministic and yet we end up with stochastic equations. How can that be? Well, it's because the Navier-Stokes equations are highly nonlinear and they couple all these scales together. And the approximation where you assume that the grid box is completely homogeneous is, is an, you know, it's an idealized assumption. So we do add noise, um, and that noise is actually quite quite beneficial. It's turned out to be, you know, extremely interesting. It is, and it's got me interested. Uh, this is another kind of whole uh, tangential uh, part of the book, you know, about the role of noise in uh, in complex systems, uh, and as a very interesting example, the brain. The brain makes, I believe constructive and positive use of noise. And it, it, the noise arises because the brain, I mean, this is one of the paradoxes of, of life, if you like, that we use these big supercomputers to make weather forecasts and climate change predictions and everything else. The computers take something like 20 megawatts of electrical power to run the, the, to run the models. The human brain processes a similar amount of information, but with 20 20 watts, so six orders of magnitude less, which is a very uh, interesting fact. Um, but a consequence of that is that the brain is a noisy system. But I think the brain makes constructive use of that noise. So anyway, noise noise, and nonlinear systems is a very uh, interesting um kind of mixture of, of concepts and um, uh, you know in in a in a linear world we just think of noise as a nuisance and we try to get rid of the noise as much as we can but in a non-linear world and we do live in a non-linear world noise can be your friend if you if you treat it with respect you just brought up noise and I'd like to get right back to that but first since I mean this this marks a transition I suppose to some of the other content in the primacy of doubt. I think I just ought to ask, why did you decide to go from your work in meteorology on uncertainty to tackling all of these other topics like economics, consciousness, creativity, and so on? Uh, you know, a lot of things I do... Uh, it, you know, are you know not necessarily super logical, but um, um, well, uh, the, the, my my move into consciousness and creativity uh, actually came, came straight out of of noise, thinking about noise, because um, uh, having you know having introduced noise into the climate into the weather and climate models. Um, and shown that that it 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 uh, it was beneficial, and it certainly improved the reliability of the forecasts because it had a, an explicit representation of the uncertainty um, in in the equations, and that helped the uh, probabilistic forecasts become more reliable. Um, but I then started thinking, you know, um, we. You know, for for years, well, for ever since pretty much the dawn of computing, uh, digital computing at least, um, it's always been assumed that we want to know the answers 
Exactly. So, you know, if we add two and two, the computer better better tell us the answer is four and not um, 3.9 or 4.1. Um, and that's all very well, except that today with, uh, you know, being right at the limit of things like Moore's Law and so on, um, this demand for bit reproducibility in uh, in computing systems actually puts a, an energy overhead on the computer. Um, so I, I started thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe we we should um, maybe there are circumstances where we can relax this uh, a priori constraint on determinism, bit, bit, bit determinism in, in digital computers. Um, uh, because after all, you know, weather forecasting is an application where, where the models benefit from noise. So one way of introducing noise would be to turn the voltage down across the transistors. They'd become slightly noisy. Um, now I'm not saying all the transistors, but some of the transistors. Um, and you save energy that way. So you could reinvest that energy by doing more calculations. So so it raises the question, you know, if you had a computer where you could, for a unit of energy, do, I don't know, a thousand two plus twos and get four, or 10,000 two plus twos and get a number between 3.9 and 4.1, I mean, what would you rather have? And I was arguing that... Um, at least for weather forecasting. And, and I can think of a lot of other applications as well, you know, where you actually might prefer more imprecise computations rather than fewer precise computations. Um, but, you know, this, 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 I mean, colleagues were thought I was completely mad uh, to suggest such a thing that you would, you know, you'd ever build a computer that wasn't precise and so on. And that's what got me interested in the brain. I was trying to think of, well, are there physical systems that do this actually in reality? Um, they, they make constructive use of noise in hardware, not noise in software, not, you know, the brain doesn't add noise by running pseudo random number generators. It run, it has noise because uh, it it tries to uh, push you know electric signals along neurons, eighty billion of them with twenty watts of energy, and you get thermal noise. You might even get quantum decoherent noise um, as well. So um, so my interest in the brain literally arose from trying to think about systems in the world which which um, where 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 there is noise in hardware and. Um, um, and the brain was one example. But I, I think actually we're, we're kind of slowly moving. Some of the computer manufacturers are sort of slightly moving in this direction, and I think it's, it'll be interesting in the next few years to see whether this really happens. Speaking of noise, I recently had Daniel Kahneman on the show, and we spoke about his book with Cass Sunstein and Olivier Siboney, called noise and that book is more concerned with decisions that groups of people might make well that a judge for instance might make the same decision or different 
when when confronted with the same choice, he might make different decisions depending on the circumstances. I think it's it's less concerned with the individual mind than thinking fast and slow is. But how was Danny Kahneman's work in thinking fast and slow useful to you in thinking about how the brain makes use of noise for creativity? Well, Kahneman, you know, famously introduced this notion of system one and system two as two kind of modes of uh, of sort of cognitive thinking. Uh, one, one mode two being very kind of uh, logical and uh, focused. Uh, the sort of thing, you know, when somebody asks you to multiply two numbers together, you'd have to pretty much shut down everything you're doing and focus on that one uh, that one task, multiplying the two numbers together. Um, whereas system one is probably the, the mode that we operate in most of the time where we're not focusing on a particular difficult problem, but just kind of you know, surviving the world. We're, we're walking around, we're looking around, we're perhaps listening to um, somebody speak or something. But, you know, it's a kind of multi-purposing um, process. Um, so that was the first point. And then the second thing which struck me was that um, when, you, when you read about some of the great discoveries um, that scientists make, um, uh, and you ask them where where did you make and how did you make this discovery? You know the thing that that gave you your Nobel Prize, for example. Um, as often as not, if if not actually more often than not, it 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 was a kind of an idea which kind of came up out of nowhere uh, when when the person was just not particularly concentrating on the problem. Uh, I mentioned, uh, I mean, two people we've already talked about. I mentioned in the book one is Henri Poincaré who worked on this uh, gravi the gravitational three-body problem. Um, his key idea was just stepping on a bus one day, and he kind of, oh, my God, yes, where's that kind of idea come from? Uh, Roger Penrose was crossing the road, dodging traffic. Just the idea came out of nowhere. And um, it got me thinking, you know, is there any connection between this and the this notion that when we're in mode one, when we're multitasking, this is likely to be the time, I think, when we're most susceptible to the noise in the brain, because this is where the 20 watts are distributed over the multiple tasks that we're having to do when we're in mode one, as opposed to the single task, you know, multiply two numbers together. All the energy is focused on a single, that single task. You stop what you're doing. You stop walking. You perhaps close your eyes. You put your hands over your ears so you don't get distracted by noise and just think, what the hell is 19 times 31 or something like that? So these two are, are very different. And the noise, if the brain's susceptible to noise, it's going to be in when it's in Kahneman's system one. And that seems to me entirely consistent with, uh, you know, the experience of the Nobel Prize winners, that that's when they get their uh, kind of eureka moments, and um, but but 
Yeah, but but of course, the thing is that once they've had the idea, then the deterministic side, the system two side kind of gets to work on it and, you know, really confirms, yeah, that was a good idea. That really does pan out. Um, but of course, it's much easier to check. Once you've had an idea, it's easy easy to check whether it's a good idea or a lousy idea, but it's always difficult to have the idea in the first place. So it kind of struck me that, that, that you know, this is a paradigm of, of creativity that that uh, you know we we get ideas out of nowhere from from the mode the mode one thinking when when we are susceptible to noise and then we confirm that those ideas are good ideas or bad ideas um, by going into mode two and I personally think that um, you know this has not been taken up nearly enough in AI research. You know this this as a kind of mode of a mode towards creative thought processes to uh, actually let the AI kind of just almost come up with, if you like, ideas at random, and then have kind of suitable algorithms for determining whether these are useful ideas or not. You know, in mathematics, AI is very good at checking potential proofs. It'll tell you whether it's a it's a good proof or a bad proof, but coming up with the idea is not yet something AI systems can do. And I think that's because the people who develop these algorithms probably don't put enough effort into the potential of, of just pure noise for generating potential ideas. And I think that is the way the human brain works pretty much. You said that when we're multitasking is when we're most susceptible to noise. And I can definitely confirm that from my own experience. It's also when we're distracted when maybe that is the same thing as multitasking, but also when we're free associating, that's when our creativity comes in. But what I'm wondering is where chaos fits into the picture here and enters the system one thinking in the brain that produces this creativity. Well, okay. I mean, the way, I mean, possibly the answer is this. I'm I, I not 100% sure. But um, you see, there are, in a way, and I, I make this point in the book, there are two types of chaos. Um, there's the chaotic model that Lorentz originally discovered in 1963, which just has three variables. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's kind of relatively easy these days to, to simulate, well, it's very easy in, on a modern computer to simulate Lorenz's model. In fact, you know, you, you often see in just screensavers, they use Lorenz's model as a sort of screensaver because it's pretty trivial to, to integrate. Um, on the other hand, you have chaotic systems like the Navier-Stokes equations, which are partial differential equations, which have, well, formally an infinite number of degrees of freedom, so much, obviously much bigger than three. Um, and um, I, I call those, you know, high-dimensional systems, high-dimensional chaotic systems. And what, you know, the reason for introducing noise in a weather forecast model is that the computer is finite and the computer is trying to represent this infinite dimensional system. So it does it with a finite 
number of equations plus noise. So the noise is a kind of surrogate for you know all the small scale stuff that it can't resolve. And you know it could be that that's the way uh, the brain deals with you know when it builds a cognitive model of the world. I mean the world is a complicated you know infinite or for all practical purposes infinite dimensional system. And, you know, the brain is finite. We have 80 billion neurons. That is a large number, but it's, it's certainly a finite number. And again, um, you know, the brain, I'm using, I'm using sort of anthropomorphic, well, I, I'm talking about a part of a, a human, but I'm using anthropomorphic language to say the brain says to itself, how am I going to represent this infinite dimensional system, which is the world outside me uh, in my, with my finitely many neurons? And it probably will conclude the best, most accurate way to do that is to represent somehow the the dominant structures in an explicit way and everything that it can't resolve to represent with noise. So I think the way the noise comes about, the link to chaos, uh, is, is that it, noise is a way of emulating in a, in a fairly simple way all those infinitely many degrees of freedom that you can't um, represent explicitly when your computing system is finite. And in the case of a supercomputer, that's the grid boxes being 10 kilometers or something. In the case of the brain, it's the fact that you've got only 80 billion or so neurons. And so, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense? Oh, sorry. It does make sense. And this notion, though, of human creativity, at least on on the surface, it appears to contrast directly with another brain and mind adjacent topic that you take on in the book, and that's free will. Because you know, presumably, I mean, if we don't have free will, then there isn't really room for creativity. And granted, that especially when we were talking about quantum mechanics, it became clear that you're, if I understood correctly, that you're committed to a determinist view of the universe. How does what we've, everything we've been discussing, I mean, most notably the geometry of chaos, help make sense for you of the puzzle of free will? Yeah. Well, look, I'm going to give you a partial answer because. I don't really claim to completely understand this, but it seems that this goes some way. Um, the issue for me with, I mean, what what is difficult about um, determinism, if you like, is the argument that it lets criminals off the hook. You know, it's it's the issue about moral responsibility in the world um, because um, the criminal just says, well, I, I did, I had no choice. Um, it, what I did, you know, the fact that I uh, killed somebody or I burgled a house or whatever it was, um, was determined by the initial conditions at the time of the Big Bang. I mean, there was no, I had no option but to do that. So you can't send me to prison because I had no choice. I, you know, that, that was what was predetermined that I would do. And I've kind of read 
a few uh, articles by people who try to, uh, you know, who, who are kind of avowed determinists uh, to see how they deal with that conundrum. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that, that, that it, they don't deal with it terribly well. Um, you, you know, they might say, well, okay, well, the purpose of sending you to jail is not to punish you but to uh, deter other people from committing the same crime. I mean, that, or, that could be a typical... Or to rehabilitate you, something like that. Yeah, okay, possibly. But I still, I kind of, I feel that's um, somehow unsatisfactory because, you know, I mean, do you let Hitler off for just because, it, you know, you say, well, it was all determined by the Big Bang? I don't know. Um, my... My gut feeling about this is that it's it, that you see. I, I talked to you earlier that this notion of um, uh, this notion of thinking about dynamical systems which evolve on their precisely on their attractors. Um, in other words, where the equations that the the laws are are geometric this is actually quite a different paradigm to the one to the normal if you like one in classical physics where we we specify an initial condition and then we have equations which are um, kind of differential equations which just map that initial state forward in time um, and the point I'm trying to make with this uh, picture of the, the the geometry of the attractor being the fundamental quantity is that it 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 can all points on all of the points on the attractor are sort of of equal ontological significance. Um, there is no kind of initial condition from which everything else evolves. You have to kind of treat. This is why I'm saying it's a kind of a very holistic picture. And I personally think that this is the way in which fundamental physics has to go. And the whole quantum gravity problem, I think, will will ultimately kind of come down to the fact that the laws of physics are much more holistic and, for example, involve the structure of the, the large-scale structure of the universe uh, as much as say, just the very small scale, like the Planck scale or whatever. Um, but in the in terms of free will, I mean, what it means is that it, the argument that, oh, well, the Big Bang made me do it, um, it, 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 this is not a valid argument because you're appealing to the Big Bang as if it's some special uh, initial state. And in fact, I would say in this context, there's something kind of quite interesting and, and, ref and self-referential in, in some sense, because I would say that um, on the one hand, the, the attractor geometry provides the laws of physics, which determines what individuals do. But equally, what individuals do determines the geometry of the attractor. So there's a kind of a, a, self, a bit of a self-referential loop. And that's exactly the sort of thing you know, that we see in Gödel's theorem and, and lots of other really interesting deep theorems in meta-mathematics. So I'm not giving you a very complete answer here, but my feeling is I am personally a believer in, in determinism, uh, not least because I think stochasticity is 
you know, I, I mean, I'm a in practice, noise is very important. It's important in weather and climate models. It's important in the brain. So at a at a kind of practical level, noise is important. But at a fundamental level, if you're really going back to absolute fundamentals, I think noise and stochasticity make no sense whatsoever. Um, and I think ultimately the world has to be deterministic because I can't see anything else making any, any sense. Um, but the one problem is with this, uh, I, I think, the moral responsibility problem. I, 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 if I believed that the Big Bang was somehow a preferred state uh, and not just one of uh, many equally ontologically equal states on the attractor, then I would actually have trouble with determinism because of this problem of moral responsibility. But I think that treating the attractor geometry as the fundamental issue somewhat diffuses that argument because one can no longer appeal to the Big Bang as somehow it was special and preferred over all the other um, states. I, I need to develop this argument a bit more. I mean, I, I kind of raised it uh, towards the end of the book. Um, it is a bit speculative, and uh, but the more I think about it, the more I feel it's potentially a very deep issue that um, I'd like to kind of explore a bit more. So you're a believer in determinism, and then what we refer to as noise and stochasticity are just a combination of the sensitivity of systems to initial conditions, which we can describe mathematically, but it's a combination of this and then our epistemic stance toward them and that we just don't know enough about them. So about we can't get enough information about the initial the initial conditions of a sufficiently complex system. And that results in what we perceive as stochasticity. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And the, and the fact that, um, as I say, you know, uh, we we can we can generate um, we can generate stochasticity or effective stochasticity um, very cheaply. And in fact, we can generate, as I was saying, you know, you can generate it uh, in a computer by turning the voltage down across transistors. So you can generate it at negative energy. Um, so it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a resource that doesn't cost anything. And in fact, not only does it not cost anything, you will actually get back some of the energy that you thought you'd uh, utilize to do more perhaps useful things. So at a practical level, we should be uh, embracing noise and stochasticity. But at a fundamental level, I don't think it makes any sense. And I don't think it makes any sense for the following reason. That if you gave me a time, uh, if you gave me a series of numbers, and it doesn't matter how long the series of numbers is, that you say has been generated uh, stochastically by a stochastic uh, system or something, I will tell you how to get exactly those same numbers in a completely deterministic algorithm. So, you know, you can give me as many numbers as you like. There's no way that you can um, categorically assert that that is the result of a stochastic scheme and not a deterministic scheme. So as I say, I just don't think, I just don't, I think it's a sort of an obscure, an obs it's something that just obscures things at a fundamental level. 
that's why I, I just can't, you know, I mean, it's like in quantum mechanics, we can, we can treat the collapse of the wave function, uh, you know, through the Copenhagen interpretation by some kind of random process, which kind of randomly um, takes you to one of the, uh, you know, eigenvectors of your op measurement operator. That's the standard recipe that people learn when they learn quantum mechanics. And it works fine. I mean, it's absolutely works absolutely fine. It produces all the answers and so on. But it makes no sense at a, at a deep fundamental level. And um, that that's the kind of key behind all of this to uncover what is the underlying uh, deterministic structure that has the appearance of noise when we formulate things in, in the Copenhagen way in quantum mechanics. Well, I'd, I'd like to shift gears because there is one topic that I wanted to make sure that I covered today with the first meteorologist on the podcast. And so we've spoken a lot about weather prediction and forecasts in the relative short term, uh, the, the sorts of forecasts that someone might make at the weather station. But how does everything we discussed about chaos and uncertainty relate to long scale climate change, which is a very charged and, and very important topic? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the first point to make is that um, climate change is a different type of prediction problem uh, to uh, you know to a to a sort of two or three day or something five day weather forecast. Um, and a kind of an analogy I sometimes use, and I think it's not too bad an analogy actually. Um, is to um, let's imagine, I don't know, for the sake of argument, um, it's December the twenty-first, so that's the winter solstice, and let's say we're in we're in London or something, um, and um, you know, you ask me what the weather's going to be like uh, in a couple of days, and I I can look at the weather app and give you a rough idea. You might ask me what the weather's going to be like a month from now, and I would be. Uh, probably very uncertain, probably unwilling to give you any very definite forecast. But if you ask me what the weather's going to be like six, six months from now, I will say, well, it's almost certainly going to be warmer than it is today because in six months' time, it'll be the summer solstice. And every day uh, after the 21st of December, the sun gets a little bit higher in the sky and uh, it warms you know, the air a bit more. And, uh, you know, that's... Now, of course, we get periods when maybe in February we'll get a cold snap and the, the temperatures will, will kind of push back again. But but by and large, you can say over six months, we'd be pretty damn sure it's getting warmer. And there kind of, it's not, I, I mean, you, you know, chaos is still happening, but you've got this big external factor, which is the sun and the fact the sun is getting higher in the sky every day. And this is the sort of external forcing that, that changes the climate um, through the year, the annual cycle, in a in a relatively deterministic way. Um, and I say relatively, I mean, you know, obviously in, in certainly British summers, um, we can get some pretty damn cool days um, when when the weather doesn't doesn't behave. But you know, by and large, on average, in a statistical way, it would be uh, there's no doubt that summers are warmer than winters. Um, I guess in parts of the United States, that would be even more clear. Um, so climate change is sort of a bit like that. Um, 
it's a bit like the sun getting higher every day, but it's that where the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is getting a little bit larger every day um, due to our emissions of carbon dioxide. Now, the difference with the sun, the sol the annual cycle, is that this effect is not um, is kind of smaller uh, on a you know day the day to day change in the change in the altitude of the sun compared to the amounts of extra CO2, um, the, su the sun effect is much larger. So we're looking at a kind of relatively small effect, but it's accumulating. Day on day, it's accumulating. Year on year, it's accumulating. Decade on decade, it's accumulating. Um, so we can certainly talk about um, the statistics of weather, which is basically what climate is, changing in a, in a kind of systematic way as a result of our emissions of, of carbon dioxide. Um, so people that say, oh, well, you know, because you can't trust a, a weather forecast more than, you know, a week or two in the future, we can't possibly trust a climate change forecast a century into the future. They're just misunderstanding the nature of the, of the prediction problem. And the prediction problem is much more like, you know, trying to estimate the effect of the sun going up a little bit every day on in terms of the, you know, the statistics of weather between, December to February and June to August or something. Um, so that's the first point. But having said that, there are uncertainties um, about climate change. And um, the, the basic physics of climate change is actually not uncertain. So the fact that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and that's warming the planet um, is kind of pretty – it's 19th century physics. It was well understood then it's 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 well understood now. So that that is not an issue. The issue around climate change is that there are various feedbacks which amplify. Now you see, I said I said in the book, and uh, actually one or two reviews from from very climate sensitive people kind of criticised me for this. But I said in the book that if carbon dioxide was the only uh, thing we needed to worry about a doubling of carbon dioxide would be would only warm the planet by a degree or so um, and that would take I mean we, we won't have doubled carbon dioxide from its pre-industrial values till uh, I don't know actually uh, certainly toward the end by the end of this probably into the next century I should think um, um, and would one do, would we bother with one? Do, I mean, I, I personally, I don't think climate change would be that much of a big deal. Now, people may some people argue with me about this, but I I don't think if we said well we're going to warm by one degree over the next hundred and something years, I don't think that would be. Um, it it wouldn't be the, the the urgent concern it is. So what's what makes it an urgent concern is that there are, there are other things which amplify the signal and. Uh, a, a kind of a relatively simple example is water vapor. So water vapor, gaseous form of water, is a greenhouse gas. And you know, as you warm the air, you can the air can hold more. I'm speaking slightly loosely now, but the air can hold more water vapor, um, so it becomes more humid on average, and that kind of amplifies the the effect of our CO2 emissions. Um, you know, another quite well-known example is um, is the effect of, of melting of ice, uh, for example, over the Arctic, because the ice reflects sunlight back to space. If you start melting it, 
the sunlight gets absorbed by the d darker water below and that warms up the ocean. Um, but as I say in the book, this, the single biggest uncertainty in climate change and, and really the one that is going to make the difference between it being a kind of existential threat for humans and just being a kind of a, an inconvenience, I mean, a, a big inconvenience, but not an existential inconvenience, is, is what happens to clouds. So the liquid form of water or liquid or ice. Um, and that can go either way. Um, depending on the altitude of the clouds, you know, whether they, they're increasing at low levels or increasing at high levels, um, um, the, the, their effect can, can be to damp climate change or to amplify climate change. Now, most of the models, unfortunately, suggest that clouds will amplify the climate change, so making it worse. And that really is what, for me, is the, is the thing which... Uh, I think, you know, causes us to say we've got to we've got to try and solve this problem because if if it's the amplifier and it takes us up to levels of warming that are you know three degrees or or more above uh, pre-industrial, then we're looking at levels of climate change which will be awful for large parts of humanity. Maybe not so much for me in the UK, but. You know, people in the Middle East and parts of Africa, South America, Central America, um, Central Asia could be unbelievably hellish. Unbelievable. I mean, it could be actually levels where the human body can't uh, actually survive anymore. So uh, it all becomes a matter of judgment. Um, is the level of risk high enough to warrant taking action? I personally think it is, but I... I do in the book try to make the point that there are two separate issues. One is the issue of what is the, what does the science say, and I think we have to be, you know, honest and say that you know there are still big uncertainties about the science, and in particular the role of the water cycle and the clouds and stuff like that. We we have a poor understanding of that aspect of climate change, but um, all the models suggest, and the you know the models are plausibly correct. But I say all the models, most of the models suggest, and, and they're plausibly correct, that, that clouds will amplify the climate change signal. And that's what and that's what's a matter of concern. Um, I'd personally like to see a lot more, you know, uh, research done on this problem. And I, I think it's the sort of problem that would be best tackled by an international center, something like a CERN for climate change. I've sort of argued for this for, for many years, actually. Um, Climate change is such a, a kind of globally important problem. We ought to be tackling it at a, at a much more global level. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, because you, you can take the science output, you can take the output from the models, but at the end of the day, you have to make a judgment. And when I say you have to, I mean, individuals maybe, and certainly politicians have to make a judgment. Is the risk of something which is um, clearly going to be um, disastrous for humanity, is that risk high enough that it's worth, you know, changing our economy uh, to a zero carbon economy uh, and so on and so forth? And of course, you know, that question is not a question, it's not a pure scientific question. It involves value judgments. Um, 
you know, it it involves questions about how you know how how difficult it is to wean us off um, fossil fuels, um, and uh, you know, what are the costs? What are the what are the what are the benefits and so on? I, I kind of feel, you know, uh, this is where actually the, you know, although I said this is not at a science level, this is not the same as weather forecasting, but but there is a good there is a good parallel. Um, you know, we talked about ensembles uh, in weather forecasting. So, for example, you know, you you want to go on a hike. Uh, I don't know in the afternoon, let's say, and you look up your the you know is it going to rain or not and um, let's say it says there's a 20% chance it's going to rain. So the question is, do you pack your waterproof gear? Okay. So um, if you don't pack your waterproof gear, then there's clearly a risk that it will rain and you're, you know, you're wearing a t-shirt and shorts or something. Uh, you'll get completely soaked. Uh, it'll be extremely uncomfortable. Uh, you might start to feel cold because it's you're wet. Um, on the other hand, to pack your waterproof gear, you've got to stick them in a backpack and that it's weighing something and it's a bit inconvenient and, uh, you know, and there's only a 20% chance anyway. So what do you do? Well, it's not a science question. Deciding whether you're going to bring your waterproof gear or not is not a science question. The science question is what is the probability of rain, 20%. You have to make your value judgments about how how much the discomfort of being soaked compares with the inconvenience of carrying heavy waterproofs in a backpack or something. It's it's similar for climate change, but it's much more serious. We have probabilities of reaching three degrees, four degrees, and so on. Um, but the question of whether it's worth doing something about it involves value judgments. And um, I in so in the book, I try to separate out these two issues. I have separate chapters, one on the science of climate change, and one on the sort of factors that you have to think about when you're making this judgment about are the probabilities high enough. Um, and I, I deliberately chose them as having separate chapters to make the point that one is about science and one, in a sense, is not about science. It's about how to use science, but putting in value judgments. And I personally feel uh, it is worth, in fact, I think it's almost a no-brainer that we should take action to avoid these risks. But I say that part, I mean, I'm saying that partly as a scientist, but, but partly just as a as a human being living on the planet. I mean, not with any particular expertise, but just knowing a bit about the probabilities and the costs and the, and the damages and so on. Um, but I, I, I feel... Um, when I when I go onto YouTube and I I don't know see people focusing on minutiae of the science, I kind of feel they're missing the big picture. And the big the big picture is there is demonstrably a a risk of you know very serious levels of climate change. I mean we don't know for certain, but there's demonstrably a risk. I mean you, you there's no question whatsoever there is a risk. But the question is is that risk high enough? That it's worth to take action, and I, I feel by kind of going into the minutiae of 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 the uncertainties in science, we're kind of missing that that big picture. You know, because just think about it in life. When do you ever make decisions in life, knowing absolutely what the future is going to be like? You never do. You always have to make decisions uh, where things are uncertain and. 
climate change is no no different to that. Um, you know, I, it it's not the case that for with complete certainty we're heading into an existential catastrophe. And similarly, it's not the case that we are unquestionably the climate change is a kind of a, a minor uh, kind of perturbation of no significance. Uh, we have to deal with the problem probabilistically, uh, but out of those probabilities, make informed uh, decisions about what is what is the best to make, what is the best decision to make. So. Everything you've said sounds extremely well reasoned to me. And just to, just to sum up, the disastrous of the disastrousness of climate change, as you see it, probably hinges on the behavior of clouds, which we don't understand well enough. But most models suggest the outcome will not be favorable. And your appraisal of the evidence is that the risk is high enough to motivate action. So then the last thing that I want to ask before we finish is just what action would it motivate? What are the main options? Is geoengineering one of them? Just cutting carbon emissions? What could actually uh, prevent the potential disastrous outcomes of most models? Well, the problem with ge geoengineering, so there is one potential route to geoengineering, which is uh, you spray the stratosphere with, uh, with aerosols, which would reflect the sunlight back to space. Um, but the problem with that is, again, because of the complexities of climate, we're not completely sure that that might not do more harm than good. You know, we might end up shutting off the monsoon circulations, which would, you know, end up with billions of people not having enough food, uh, or or we might end up, you know, re shutting off the moisture supply to the uh, rainforests, which would then uh, lead them to be a major source of carbon. So you know, we end up going backwards. So, um, so I'm not at all a, f a fan of geoengineering, although I think you know it, it's something we have to do research on to understand it better, but I, I don't think that's a solution. Um, I mean, I personally feel, again, this is, this is my own view, um, that we need to uh, embrace all of the technologies that, that could help us. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about putting too much into renewable energy uh, because of the problem of intermittency of of of, uh, of wind and um, and uh, cloud, um, uh, for example, in the UK, you know, we're certainly putting a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of development of of wind turbines in the North Sea, and there are plans for more out in the Atlantic and so on. And we're certainly building up a lot of um, solar capability, but. You know, we get periods of of weeks or longer where the wind hardly blows at all. You get these big anticyclones forming over the UK, um, and um, uh, again, one of the uncertainties about climate change is we don't know actually whether these might become more frequent in the future. You know, in fifty years from now, which would, um, you know, uh, and given that we're we're moving to an economy where more and more of the energy we need for you know transport for heating for industry and so on uh, is coming from electricity 
then I think um, being overly dependent on wind and solar, I think, is a risky um, solution. So my, I'm personally somebody who's in favor of, uh, of for example, nuclear, new, new generation nuclear. I'm particularly keen on, on the so-called thorium reactors, which um, uh, there's a lot of interest. In fact, China's building a prototype, um, which have a lot of advantages. Um, but, you know, I think we need, and I, I personally would like to see, you know, more development of carbon capture. I think I, I don't particularly see why we should stop uh, burning gas and so on if we can ca capture the carbon in a reasonably uh, economic way. So um, the, some of these things like carbon capture and, and nuclear are, are not well considered by some environmentalists. But I, my own feeling is that the this is such a, a, an important and urgent problem that we shouldn't let ideology get too much in the way and we should embrace all of the technologies that we can to solve this problem. And if carbon capture and nuclear are part of that, then I, th I think we should, um, we should uh, invest in that too. Well, we, we've covered a, a number of topics and it was really great to be able to bounce around. I'd, I'd definitely love to talk with you again and maybe another physicist in more depth about quantum mechanics, determinism, and cosmology. But for now, thanks so much for having this conversation with me, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.